Good evening, everybody. Good to see your faces. You guys look great, by the way. I don't know how you feel, but you guys are looking really good. A lot of brightness, a lot of presence. So, the talk this evening is entitled, The Wound That Seeks the Arrow. Which is a challenging talk for me to give because it's not... It's not a very common teaching. It also is uh, difficult because it puts me in a position to have to talk about the ways in which my wounds seek arrows. Um, And of course, when we hear this idea, it's very counterintuitive. You might be thinking to yourself, well, why would the wound seek an arrow? Doesn't make any sense. And so we were talking earlier this morning, I was talking earlier this morning about chitta, and I'm, I'm hoping that you're starting to experientially feel into what this might be, this kind of body, mind, heart experience that comes together. English, there's no really English word to describe what this, what the Buddha was pointing to when, when we talk about chitta. But in a very pragmatic sense, perhaps, we can maybe acknowledge that as we go through our lives, as we, as we go through the world, the chitta, on one hand, is affected. So there's an affective quality to it, that life affects us. We're affected by a whole range of things. Going all the way back to our earliest memories. And so we... We have pain, we have difficulty, we have things not go so well, experiences, probably lots of them, in which we, we kind of take on this, this woundedness, this painfulness. And it doesn't end, it doesn't just happen and then we're just all better now, as I'm sure you're aware. And so the chitta is very effective. So. Much of our early lives, we go through the world and we're just kind of accumulating this affective quality of maybe not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, things not going the way we thought they would, people not living up to our expectations. Dukkha. Difficulty, rub. And so we acquire this affective experience of chitta, but the chitta also responds as well. So it, it's what is affected by experience, it's what holds that experience, it's what metabolizes it, usually not in great ways. And then we find ourselves responding from, from this place. And so... One thing that Buddhist teachers are famous for saying that I always thought was a little bit inaccurate is that we hate pain. And one of our problems as human beings is that we have hatred towards pain, which is probably somewhat true. But I find much more uh, that I'm scared of it, that I, I'm afraid of pain. And in my history experience, I know that there's been pain in the past, and I don't want to experience that pain again in the future. 
So I create defense mechanisms and strategies to try to avoid being hurt again. And that doesn't really work so much, actually. You really kind of can't do that. And so the fear of pain installation creates this kind of what the Buddha calls dukkha sankara, which is, a, which is an activation. Sankara is a sort of like a type of activation program. So if I'm sitting here in the hall, how would this play out here is I'm sitting, sitting in the body, painful feeling in the body with maybe a nonverbal component to it. Fear, oh, something's not going to be okay. Fear, pain, perception, something's not okay. Memory, oh, there's been lots of things in the past that haven't been okay. Something's not going to be okay. Oh, gee, this seems to happen a lot. I'm upset, I'm angry and upset. Perception, I'm a person sitting here angry and upset. Here's a problem. I have a problem, angry and upset. Pain. Fear, pain. And then the the historicization of that, the whole memory system, our database around fear and pain starts to strategize or calculate or try to fix or control. Now something about this moment isn't okay or not going to be okay. And we that wound that seeks that arrow goes out to search for evidence. Hmm. And it finds it real fast. (laughs) And then a whole drop-down menu just kind of explodes into consciousness of all the troubleshooting about why this is happening. And that Dukkha Sankara, there's there's a Sankara, there's a bodily Sankara, so there's an activation in the body. It It can be the most subtle tick in the shoulder. It doesn't need to be massive. It can be a subtle sense of dissatisfaction, discomfort, pain. Dukkha Sankara, bodily Sankara, an activation in the body, creates an activation in in what's called Vachi Sankara, verbal. So now there's a verbal memory, a story. Make a story about this. It's not going to be okay. It's not been okay in the past. It's not going to be okay in the future. And then the Chitta Sankara, the the wound kind of reactivates itself. And that in that wound, that arrow goes out searching for who done it? Whose fault is it? Why is it like this? It's always like this. I'm like this. And it's that I am. I am a person with a problem. My problem is pain. Why do I have this pain problem? I always have this pain problem. And how long does it take, you think, for all that to happen? And you're in. Right? So there's really no... There's no blank slate moment here. I know that with, with the popularity of mindfulness, sometimes we can fall slip into this delusion that we think we're going to arrive in the pleasant, present moment, and it's going to be a pleasant moment. The present, where's the present pleasant moment, man? <laughs> I read that article too, didn't you? At the Mindful Magazine at the Rack at Whole Foods. 
go read that article at that magazine. And you don't get that. There's no blank slate. It's not like everything that's happened before this moment just like, there's no blank slate. Like, all these systems come into place. So our pain history, and there's a lot of ways we have a pain history, and it starts just by looking at the most basic forms of pain, which would be in the body, which usually activates. We switches it on. We have physical pain. We have emotional pain. We have mental pain, the pain of the mind. Has anybody had any notice any pain in the mind? Confusion, frustration aggravation, disappointment, painful, mental, ouch. And then, of course, usually the biggest installation of the pain, histrionic pain or historical pain, would be the relational pain. Have you ever experienced pain in your relationships with another human being? (laughs) (laughs) So these... I call them installations as we go through life. The, the chitta gets wounded. And there's not much we can do about that. Oh, we try though. <laughs> right. So one, one of the ways, when we think about this word wound, I, one of the things that I really like that's happening uh, is the work of people like Brene Brown, who's really done all this great scientific research on vulnerability. And to some degree, I almost like to to translate dukkha as vulnerable, vulnerability. We are extremely vulnerable creatures. Emotionally, psychologically, emotionally, relationally. And so what happens in in the mind system, in, in the Buddhist psychology, is that the mind is very susceptible to greed, hatred, and delusion is where easily, the chitta is so easily affected by experience. And if there's been a lot of pain, then we're going to create a habit system of resistance or fear or anger or defensiveness to be defended, having that defended heart. Well, I, I just won't let anybody in. That's just how we're going to do it from now on. Just, just, let's just lock it down, Fort Knox. Shut it down, man. Shut down the heart, build this defensive system against it. The problem with that that I've noticed, because I've done this very successfully, thank you, (laughs) is that I actually don't keep everything out. All I do is lock all of that woundedness inside. So I kind of can live in this prison of, of that experience. So the wound is unliberated, it's unknown. And what it does is it, what drives the arrow is is it lives in this fear that's trying to justify its existence or its truth. Or this like, I am, is it that I am really like this, I really am this wounded person. And as I go through the world, 
all of the pain history that I've experienced, because I'm so scared that it's going to happen again, I'm constantly clocking and monitoring my environment, waiting for the next. I'm actually looking for it. I think I'm protecting myself against it. And maybe at times I am. And whatever deep-rooted view I have about myself, about being a person who's been wounded in this way, I'm, I'm looking for evidence to validate that story. And I'm trying to create a, a self-protection through this distorted lens of ignorance and fear and denial. And then something happens... I get disappointed, I get let down, things don't go my way, somebody doesn't do what they say they're supposed to do. And I go, see? Told you. It's always like this, this always happens to me. It's like (laughs) the arrow found the wound once again. Because it's still open. So it's, you know, it's it's just misguided. It's not, this isn't, you know, something we want to, again, we don't want to pathologize or derogatorize this kind of experience. It's just trying to defend itself against future harming. It's just, it's just not doing it very well. It's not, there's something that's not known, there's something that's not explored, there's something that we... And the problem with it, I found for me, is that some of it goes back so far that it's like it's been so true for so long that I'm like, well, it has to just be true. It really has to be true. Like, I really am like this. Just, these things really do happen to me. Because, I've, because, because there's been evidence of that, and I've been looking for so much evidence for that that I have this whole case file that I've been building. Why would I want to build that case? Because I want it to stop happening. And I think if I can build the right case or have the right understanding that for some reason I'm going to stop being hurt. And we all know that that's not true. But we certainly give it our best. And when you're on retreat and all the distractions are stripped away, you, you start to see this kind of play out moment to moment to moment where it's like where in, in the, the moment, the dissatisfaction, even if it's just a little bit, the mind, that activation, that pain, the body, that fear, kind of that dukkha sankara switches on and, we, and we, we, we proliferate into the mind, into some story, into some view, into some know it's like this, the retreat's going to be like this. This is what it's going to be like. And so instead of feeling into experience, which is what we're trying to do, instead of feeling into the chitta, into this kind of uh, experience with kindness, with a sense of ease, with a sense of uh, feeling into, into, into the wound and letting the wound know that, that you're there for it, that it's okay, that it's not a problem, we go the other way. 
And so the thing about Dharma that's been so hard to to wrap my head around, but also I have a lot of evidence, is that the Dharma doesn't really prescribe to time. It's not about time. It doesn't. The Dharma doesn't do linear so much. Also, emotions don't do linear. And we do have this non-verbal aspect of mind where emotion is, where iconic representation is, where the meaning-making is. Do you have a meaning-making machine that you're aware of? This happened, this experience happened, this means this about me. We make, we, we, we make meaning. And that oftentimes, I've noticed, for me, maybe not true for everyone, it, it, the, the meaning-making machine does come, to some degree, from a place of hurt. So there's a couple of ways in which we can work with this in a practice way so that way we don't dive into the pool of this stuff necessarily. So it's again, this middle way is so hard. so easy to say a middle way. But when you actually try to to negotiate a middle way moment to moment, it's it's really quite, it's like walking a tightrope. You're just like, whoo, fall off every other second. And part of, I think, one of the things that's so helpful, which is why we teach so much metta, and why we, me and Cheryl emphasize so much an attitude of, of practice, is there's a way in which you can start to feel into the present time experience and begin to cultivate this perspective or this view that actually this moment's pretty, this is actually pretty good. It's already pretty good. And that's really where the, the, the metta vipassana, uh, or just being having an uh, embodied experience, and where we can feel into a sense of, of safety, of goodness, of ease, of presence. It's like, oh, yeah. you're already doing pretty good. Of course, there's pain in the body, and there's discomfort, and there's boredom, and there's loneliness, and there's all, all of that stuff will arise. But if we can try to practice from this place of like, pretty good, this is pretty good right here, right now. And, and going into practice from that place. So we have to begin to enter the wound. And, you know, it can be one, you know, the big toe in the pool, you know. But the, the way we enter it is that we really just have to access the body in that way where we have to feel through the restlessness. Because I know that for me, one thing that's made practice so hard is it's like, I totally get it intellectually. And there's my body and my breath and sounds and there's this present moment. And I just, I, I find myself so much of the time restlessly hovering above. I'm just not quite, I just don't want to do this actually. Something about this seems a little scary. Or maybe I can't do it. Or I just find that there's this kind of Restless hovering. And, and in between that restless hovering, there's this moment that I'm restless hovering above. But then the mind is like, well, there's, I wonder if there's a different or better moment I could be in. There's <laughs> this, I'm just scanning, looking around, going, hmm, yeah, probably. 
I can't connect. I can't sustain. I can't. I can't do the mindful. I can't do this this dharma thing. I can't. I I, I feel like I'm restlessly hovering above that. And sometimes we can do it. And so again, we have to try to. This is why unhooking from the mind or the thinking or whatever you want to call it, what I, really what I think of it as is the dukkha sankara, is the mental activation. Something gets activated. A program system gets activated. And it starts to run. It starts to operate. And I get caught in the story. I get caught in the what if I get caught in the if only I start imagining how the moment could be better, how the retreat could be better, how I could be better, how my family could be better, how the world could be better. Mostly, I think, because there's something that's just not being felt or known about this experience. And so it's so important that we try to be kind and be welcoming and just like allowing all of aspects of ourselves into the practice. And not getting into that sort of behavior around... uh, in the instructions this morning, I don't know if you've been watching at all today. Have you noticed you've been waiting for something to happen? Have you noticed you've been waiting for something to go away? That's all born out of this restlessness and delusion and a kind of resistance towards life. And so we're just trying again, whatever you can do to access pouring the mind into the body kind of coming back to that and trying to allow this moment experience to be good enough and to be, it's okay to be here. So what is it? What is it? One of my favorite teachers, Ajahn Suchito, who's actually taught here before, who I think about often, who had a very profound impact on me because he's, uh, been a Thai forest master for years, and uh, I sat with him many times. And one time I sat with him for a month, and he's the most liberated person I've ever been around. And he's just to sit in his presence is actually fairly striking. I don't know what he's on, but I want some of it. And he talks a lot about this this kind of stuff. What is it? What is it, and how is it? So when we feel that restlessness, that aversion, that kind of... Do you get the sense of this kind of restless hovering above the moment? Right. So trying to feel what's perpetuating the hover. What, what is this? Really curious. What is this? Is this an old story? Is this a memory? Pain in my body? Sadness? Loneliness? What? What is it that's not letting me, that's not allowing me, that's defending me from, that's kind of keeping me out of the moment? Saying, you don't want to, you don't want to be in this moment. Trust me. (laughs) I've been down here for a long time, it's no good. You just keep restlessly hovering and I'm going to sort it out for you. I'll just keep shooting those arrows. Eventually we've got to hit something good, at least statistically, right? It can't always hit the wound. I think it does, though. (laughs) <laughs> circles back around 
what is it, how is it, how is it? And the how is it is really important. We have to be very careful what, what sidetracks these kinds of questions of what is it, how is it, is why is it. Why is almost, I would almost say that in a meditative inquiry, why is typically 95% of the time a dangerous question. Why is my leg hurt? Why is there pain in my body? Why do things not go my way? It's just like, it doesn't go anywhere. It just goes to the next why. But how is it? Well, it hurts. feels tight. feels sullen. feels aggravated. feels frustrated. feels scared. feels suspicious. feels undeserving. Okay. That's how it is. So when we start to use mindfulness, awareness, recognition, recognizing how it is, recognizing how it is, allowing it to be like that. What is it? How is it? And it does require, I think, one of the things I think that is so valuable that really destroys actually the whole wound that seeks the arrow and the denial and the ignorance is just this kind of self-honesty about really this willingness to be honest about the difficulties in our life. Yeah, I'm just... This is just... this, This particular thing is really hard for me. And that's really that metta and when the metta becomes compassion says, yeah, like, it's almost like a, 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 a con, an internal conversation. It says, yeah, that's, this, this aspect of my experience, or this memory, or this, this thing that's revisiting, this is just, I, this is a hard one. This is hard for me. And there's something actually very comforting about that because then the, the Dukkha Sankara, the activation, kind of switches off. Because the defense mechanism, if there's nothing to defend, then the defense mechanism switches off. If there's no fear, if there's confidence, if there's trust, if there's willingness and openness and curiosity and all these qualities we talk about, if those things are present, then the how of it becomes very manageable, and very available. And we can divorce our thinking from the, hor- the historicizing of the event. And why we, can, we can kind of get out of that one. We can get out of that activation. I sometimes feel like it's talking the mind off the ledge. Like, get, me, get off the ledge, man. And you're just out there going, I'll jump, I swear to God. <laughs> you come one step closer. Like, no, it's all right. It's not a big deal. And one thing that we can do in this practice of, of, of this self-honesty is becoming aware of the causes. Becoming aware of, uh, we've been talking a lot about this on this retreat, around the view and the perception and the attitude. 
Because usually when the attitude is strong and, and extreme, especially when the attitude is absolute, it's like this. Then you know you're clinging. Absolute. I've, I've decided absolutely, for sure, 100%, it's like this. And it's always going to be like this. So no curiosity, no willingness, probably not a whole lot of kindness. Just a fixed, tight, <coughs> concrete almost way of... And then, and, then, and then the practice kind of dies because I'm, I'm actually not willing to practice with this. I, I, I'm not interested in what this is or how it is. I'm really interested in how to get rid of it. And now I have to fix it. I have to fix it. How do I fix it? something wrong with me. I need to fix it. I came on this retreat to fix myself because I got psychological problems or I have emotional distress. I <laughs> fix it. <laughs> That's the wound that seeks the arrow. In the view. If there's a low-grade view, an attitude hovering below the surface of my experience that is to some degree convinced or compelled by the idea that there's something wrong with me, then I'm going to, the mental activation, the Dukkha Sankara is going to just launch out into the world of mental proliferation, gathering evidence. And you're going to go, see? And then there's a wonderful drop-down menu of evidence. And then game over. Sit here and just be aggravated and disappointed and angry and upset. <laughs> I'm a person who's aggravated and upset. Pain in body. Always like this. I'm always like a person who does this. I'm supposed to be a Dharma practitioner who's supposed to liberate himself from being angry and upset, but I can't even do that. I am the worst meditator here. (laughs) Look around. Everybody else is having a wonderful time. They're all just merging with the deathless. (laughs) Not me. No way. Never going to happen. Why would you want to plead that case? Why would you want to be even be right about that? Don't you want to be wrong about that? This is why the thinking and the mental activation and the uh, there's a lot of ways to say it, it can be so destructive, which is one of the reasons why a big aspect of what we ask people to do on this retreat is breaking that addiction to that that aspect of experience. There's a lot more going on than that. A lot more going on than that. You've seen that. You get that. But that's so strong. That activation program, that those programs, and it's not just one program, there's quite a few programs. The Things Don't Go My Way program, the Nobody Loves Me program, the Nobody Understands Me program, the world's going down in a blaze of flames program. There's a whole bunch of them. And we're like, where's the Wisdom Compassion Channel? Where's that program? I don't, 
That one didn't come on my television. I want to switch that one on. Sorry. Yes, so you're, you're, you're kind of trying to build that one out. So what is it? How is it? What is it? How is it? What is it? How is it? And then the, probably the most important question, what does it need? What can I, what can I actually, maybe you could consider, what could I actually bring to the table of the present moment? Rather than just like, yeah, well, I'm here. Where's the good shit, man? Where's the stuff? I showed up. No idea to think that maybe there's something I could offer to the experience. And, you know, we don't, we don't know what it needs. And so, in this quest of kind of entering the wound, understanding the wound, and then really healing the wound, is one of the things that we want to be able to do in our, just kind of our perception and our view, is, is to try to create an optimistic landscape of feeling optimistic about, I can do something about this. This is possible. There's a possibility. There's possibilities being offered here that people have been doing for 3,000 years. Same body, same heart, same mind, same, same janky old operating system that you're working with. <laughs> you're like, no, 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 I got the bad one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Right? Where's the manufacturer's warranty? This thing is not working right. And it, the one thing about, about Dharma that has always been so, it's given me such a sense of uh, really just ease. It's just like, okay, like, I really believe we're all operating on the same system. We all have our degree of limitations. We all have our degree of possibilities. But trying to really incline the mind, Cheryl talked about this the other day and, and, and teaches and talks about this often in her work, is this gladdening of the mind. This intentional inclining the mind towards a view that is more optimistic, more hopeful, more open to possibilities, which is the nature of curiosity. Like, hmm, what are the possibilities here? Endless. what this mind can do, what can this mind do for the good? And so this is where I get into the territory oftentimes of uh, mindfulness is, is simply just not enough here. So even if you're with me up to this point, being able to recognize this, understanding this, being able to recognize the wound that seeks the arrow, being able to recognize the activations, being aware of that and recognizing it, it's just not enough. Because so much of what we see is oftentimes so painful. And if some of our biggest wounds were installed in the relational field, 
then the healing has to be resolved in the relational field, which is, a, which is a theory that they use in trauma therapy, that whatever the trauma installation was, if it was installed relationally, then the healing happens relationally. And so when we work with Dharma, we're really trying to look at a lot of it has to do with other people, but we really have to begin with ourselves. So we're looking at the internal relation. And so really these Brahma-viharas I'm going to speak about here for the rest of the evening is really how the wound gets healed. And it's unfortunate that, or I think it's unfortunate that we have this word Brahma-vihara which we usually say heart practices, probably most of you know, there's mindfulness practices, the four foundations of mindfulness, it is the four immeasurables, and mindfulness has sort of gotten the, sort of the gold star of being the thing that's most important. And it is very important, it, it, it gets us in the room, it gets us in this territory that we're speaking of, but I have found that it falls flat if I'm not able to bring something if I'm not able to call something or bring something to the table, I'm just like, okay, yeah, so I'm really, really hurt, and I'm really, really wounded, and, you know, like, shit in my mind is really, really insane. I'm totally recognizing that. And um, so just be kind, or what's the deal here? At that point, I'm like, switch the mindfulness off. I, I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting being a mindfulness teacher and teaching secular mindfulness and in substance abuse and in prison programs and a lot of places I've taught. One thing I've noticed is as soon as the mindfulness starts to work, people bail. They come in, they practice for like three months in the Sangha and it's really working for them and they're totally into it. And then they start getting into some of the territory I'm talking about. They're like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I've seen all I need to see here. And my teacher, Stephen Smith, talks about these Brahma-viharas as being beautiful spiritual emotions that also came on the hard drive. They came with the system. But they've been underutilized, they've been underdeveloped. Maybe they haven't even been identified as possibilities. And the reason why, if you're interested, and I, I think it's interesting to look at the landscape and the time in which the Buddha lived and why we have this term, Brahma-vihara. So in the spiritual tradition of the time, back 26-some-odd years, 600 years ago, there was a lot of people doing spiritual practices. And one of the things that you would say, if I ran into Stu on the streets or ran into Andrew on the streets, I would say, may you dwell with Brahma. That would be kind of like a may, you know, I hope it works out for you, or I'm rooting for you. It would be kind of a nicety in the spiritual world, even if we did different practices. And I was like, the thing that Stu's doing is really weird anyway, but may you dwell with Brahma, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And so the Buddha said, well, what does it mean to dwell with Brahma, which was kind of the God figure of the day. And so the Buddha, which one thing that he did often is he took terminology that people used and he redefined it which is one of the things that made him very countercultural. People would talk about something and define something. He'd go, that's not what it means. It means this. He did that with things like karma. He did that with things like Brahma. He says to dwell with Brahma, to be fully with God, dare I say, or to be 
embody, to be free in this mind-body system, is to embody a heart of loving-kindness, to embody a heart of compassion, to embody a heart of appreciation and gratitude, and to embody a heart and mind of equanimity. So the goal of practice is for us to really embody these kinds of qualities as a type of healing field. There's a, a, a researcher and scientist and spiritualist named Mario Martinez who talks about these four immeasurables or the Brahma Viharas, the heart practices, whatever you want language you want to use, as healing fields. And so we have to I don't know if you've been looking for the, 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 the Brahma Vihara field, but it's not as obvious as that field. But there, there's a way in which we can hearken our attention and our attitude and we can kind of get the mind-body system into these, these chittas, these possibilities. And I'm sure that you've all felt and seen and experienced these. And all people do. You don't have to be a Buddhist practitioner. All spiritual traditions and religious traditions talk about compassion. It's a humanistic thing. It's something, it's a human possibility. Buddhism doesn't own it. Buddhism's done a pretty good job of helping us get there. But they're, they're just part of our human experience and part of our human possibility. And so we call them, sometimes called metapractice. Uh, and metta has many, many different qualities. So we start simply by trying to bring this um, quality, this attitude of, of kindness, friendliness. Maybe we could even just say metta is about acceptance. I have a very, very hard time translating metta as loving kindness because I carries with it too. And to be honest with you, much of my woundedness was installed through uh, love not working out. I'm sure I'm not alone. So that that puts me in a bad spot right out of the gate if I'm trying to cultivate loving kindness. Because I'm like, love, man, that's some scary stuff. <laughs> I don't do the love thing. That's too painful. But it's really this, maybe just acceptance of things as they are. So there's a way in which we want to call that to mind in experiences when, when we don't feel safe or we feel uneasy or we feel that low-grade sense of pain in the system. It's okay. I actually really like this okayness term. It's very colloquial. It's very, we all know what it means. I do now. I'm okay. Okay is pretty good. So there's a way in which we can kind of bring that. You, 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 that's usually not going to... A, arise by itself. We have to call that to mind. We have to incline. We have to... Usually it takes some participation on our part. And so that metta becomes a a baseline and it becomes part of mindfulness practice. Remember to recognize the metta. Remember to recognize the present moment experience. If you recognize the present moment experience and it's a difficult experience and unpleasant and hard to bear, then bring metta to it. Say, yeah, it's okay. It's, it's hard right now. It's okay that it's hard right now. Has that thought occurred to you? Maybe it's okay that it's hard right now. It's going to be hard sometimes. 
it's okay. And that right there neutralizes that dukkha sankara, that activation doesn't kick on now. I don't have to defend, to defend myself against a moment because it's okay. So in the psychology of karma, if I do that, it's okay, remember to recognize, if I do that behavior, then I don't get the switch on. I don't get, the wound doesn't start launching the arrows out into the world of mental proliferation to try to figure out how to fix it or what's wrong or where to come from or who done it or what am I going to do about it and why is it like this? Why is it always like that? That doesn't happen. They can't both happen simultaneously. You can't be at ease and suffer at the same time. (laughs) Now they might switch on and off pretty quick and I think it's tricky, but that's how it goes. So it's so important to remember, to recognize that this is such a vital aspect of Buddha Dharma, this benevolence, kindness, this deep understanding that there's actually nothing wrong with you. You know, things have been hard, things didn't always go well, they don't always go well, it's going to continue to happen. But if I'm all, if I'm holding the perspective and the attitude and the framework and the ground that I'm already okay, I'm going to bypass a whole boatload of just suffering. But that's not all. So that's one quality of metta. That's sort of the the root of metta. That's the soil that metta grows in, is this kindness and friendliness. And then when we find that life gets really hard, when there's there's relational pain, emotional pain, when, when the stakes get high, as they certainly will, then that metta it transforms and it calls to mind and it becomes karuna, it becomes a compassion. It becomes a type of kindness that cares. And we don't need to have compassion all the time. Compassion is appropriate and necessary and useful in moments where there's pain and suffering. But the metta, the the wisdom aspect of metta, knows, recognizes, oh, this is a really hard this is a hard thing for me. This is a, a historical pain event. This is an ongoing thing. This is a really sad emotion. And then Metta can kind of say, okay, well, we need, we need some compassion here. It changes. It's still Metta. It doesn't, metta doesn't go away and compassion arises. The Metta just expands. Metta is expansive. And there's still kindness and there's still friendliness, but now there's compassion that can hold that and can meet that and can heal that field. That field of chitta, that field of, of woundedness. It can say, I got you, it's okay, Like I'm here for you. And so we want to cultivate that. And it takes some mindfulness, and it takes some metta, and it's, it's not just a thing. It's not like compassion is a thing, and we switch on the compassion thing now. There has to be other contributing factors that, that allow it to arise. It arises dependent upon other conditions. Everything is conditional. If there's mindfulness, 
if there's presence, if there's recognition, then there's likely for the possibility of metta. If there's mindfulness and recognition, and there's metta, then dependent upon those, what's likely to arise is compassion, because compassion is supported by those. And we start building out this sort of wise, compassionate heart. That's still not it, though. Because it's not all bad. And so what about the joy? So metta, when it is faced with moments of joy and success and connection and ease and beauty and pleasure, then we, metta calls to mind a sense of appreciation of like, oh, this is great. To recognize with gratitude is, is, is the nature of what they call mudita, which is sometimes called sympathetic joy. It's not translated very well, unfortunately. I actually translate it as gratitude because that's the word that makes most sense to me. To recognize goodness with a sense of gratitude. Oh, this is good. Recognize that. Enjoy. Enjoy. But this gets very complex for a lot of us because some of our woundedness has been around joy. Some people feel like they don't deserve joy. Or they're scared of joy because if they get joy, maybe they've had some joy in their life before, a very important relationship, an important job, something very important in their life that brought them joy that ended. It was stripped away. Somebody died. Something ended. And then we become scared of joy. I don't want to do the joy thing. That's, that's going to hurt when it doesn't pan out. Maybe it doesn't make sense. Well, I'm not afraid of joy. Maybe you're afraid of joy. Maybe we're afraid of happiness. It's not just all about pain. Sometimes it's the joy, the happiness, the success, the connection. I'm mostly afraid of love, to be honest with you. I get real suspicious when love shows up. I'm like, wait a minute, what are you going to do to me now? (laughs) I don't meet it with metta. I meet it with suspicion and resistance. Because a lot of pain was installed around love. I'd rather just do without all that, thank you. So then metta, people sometimes get confused and think metta is about difficulty and pain only. But metta is also about joy. Can I be at ease with joy? Can you be at ease with love? Can you be at ease with the kindness from somebody else? Are you at ease when somebody extends a compliment or gratitude towards you? Or do you get kind of squirrely? Are you able to receive the beautiful aspects of the world Sometimes we might find we do better with pain, actually, turns out. I'd rather be totally disappointed and aggravated than happy. I can do that. So we don't want to assume that everybody or that we always have a wholesome or authentic or skillful relationship with joy and love and beauty. And Maybe we don't. Maybe we don't have ease with those. Maybe that makes us more activated. 
So it's not as simple as you might think. And so then we have this fourth one. So we have the metta. The metta transforms and responds to pain and difficulty with compassion when that's when those conditions are present. When those conditions aren't present, there's no need. We just kind of metta becomes metta again. When we're greeted with appreciation and love and acceptance and joy, then the metta transforms into an appreciation kind of quality. And when all of these practices are fully developed and their full fruition is it, 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 it comes together in the experience of equanimity, or what I would call now genuine happiness. Because our happiness doesn't become dependent upon conditions. It come, becomes dependent upon our internal relationship to ourselves and the world. And equanimity is, is, is the full fruition of metta, because now equanimity knows, equanimity recognizes, it remembers to recognize what's happening. It knows what it is, it knows how it is, and it knows what it needs. And it freely offers it. It understands and knows that life is complex, that there will be joy, there will be sorrow. It knows what to do with the joy, it knows what to do with the sorrow. It knows what to do with the pain. It knows what to do with the success. It knows what to do with the fear. Because it's fully liberated. It has no confusion. It has no doubt. And so when we look at the teachings, mindfulness practice, when, when fully applied... And practice and develop leads into this seventh awakening factor when mindfulness is in its full fruition leads to the experience of equanimity. The heart practice, when the Brahma Viharas are applied and developed and fully and they come into their full fruition, they also arrive in the experience of equanimity. Both paths end up in the same place. And I have found that it's really quite useful to have an integrative approach and to practice both. To not put all your chips on the mindfulness bet. Because without these relational attitude, heart, emotional, whatever word you want to use, it's just hard to describe what, what it is. Chitta, this is what the Buddha called it, chitta, liberated chitta. It's not just about this whole wisdom thing. It's not just about being smart or being able to understand Dharma or some of these ideas intellectually. It's a big trap for many people. If I could just get what the Buddha was getting at, (laughs) I'll I'll be good. That's maybe maybe a, a small component of it. But it's really in this kind of learning how to relate to experience. And, you know, closing that wound that seeks the arrow. And allowing yourself... So this this word they use, vulnerability. Actually, the word vulner means wound. That's 
what that's where that word comes from. So, so vulnerability is the ability to express and to live through and from my woundedness without collapsing into it. And this, this sort of genuine happiness, this authentic way of acknowledging the hurt, not being in denial about it, but not letting it dictate. Ultimately, I think the practice is actually about joy and about genuine happiness. But unfortunately, sometimes we have to do some some work that's challenging to get there. This is why the Buddha said, the Dharma is good in the beginning. It's good in the beginning because we just can feel into this innate sense of goodness, of okayness. You're already okay. That's good. That's, that's a great place to start from. Right? We start with that, what they call sila. This kind of discipline around integrity, non-harming, benevolence. Maybe it's this idea of, I, I'm a good person and I want to be a good person. That's good in the beginning, because you can, you can start right there, right now. Like That's, a, that's not a, you know... It doesn't take years of practice to come to that understanding most of the time. It's good in the middle because we start to see the benefits of practice. We start to see the joy of practice. We start to see the progression of practice. Our practice becomes progressive and we move through all the stuff I'm talking about in a way where we, 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 have, that re, we have that sort of resiliency that comes from that. The challenge arises, we overcome the challenge. The challenge arises, that's what resiliency is, is the overcoming of a challenge. And then we get confidence that we can do that. Confidence is such a great emotional experience. It's like, if you have confidence, have you ever noticed when you have confidence you can pretty much get anything done? I don't do so good when there's doubt. And then it's good in the end because we start to experience some of this fruition. We start to harvest joy. We, we have that harvest experience of harvesting joy, harvesting compassion, harvesting kindness, harvesting awareness, harvesting patience and equanimity and generosity and flexibility and openness and spaciousness and agreeability. And we don't have to be... We don't have to be defensive. We're not def- There's nothing to defend anymore. I don't have to defend myself. I'm free. So I offer this for your reflection and thank you for your kind attention this evening. Let's sit for a few minutes.
and feeling deep into the moment and to just ask yourself, allowing this moment to be good enough. It's already good enough. This is a good place to start. We have a short period of time for walking, getting some fresh air, stretching the body. And we'll see you back in here for the last sit. And we'll end with some chanting as we always do. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.